Welcome to Good People Podcast, where each episode we explore what it means to be good by talking to everyday heroes, politicians, altruists, and do-gooders. I'm Kelsey Timmerman, author of the Where Am I series, Where Am I Wearing, Where Am I Eating, Where Am I Giving? Uh, basically, on Good People, we talk about people who give a damn. And today, I'm joined by a few friends, uh, one who's with me on a regular basis, Jay Mormon. Jay, how's it going? Hey, Kelsey. It's going great. Got a beer yeah. in hand. I'm ready for uh, talking with our friends here. I'm drinking. Well, I've got a lot of Zoom calls. I have like two and a half hours of Zoom calls this evening. So I thought. Oh, I just tonight. Beer. Oh, yeah. I, I already did all those. I'm on the okay. I'm on the other side. Yeah. Well, enjoy it. Uh, I'm also joined uh, by my friend Scott Truex. Howdy, Scott. Hey, Kelsey. How are you this evening? Good. How's has, uh, the fame of uh, appearing on our uh, podcast gone to your head since we last spoke? You know, it's just been amazing the how that's impacted my life. So uh, <laughs> Scott uh, shared some of his experiences in the previous episode, I don't know what number, um, about visiting the U.S.-Mexican um, border. And he's since visited there with students, so we might have to touch back with Scott, but that's not what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, and also joined by John Motlock. How are you doing, John? I'm doing fine, Kelsey. Yourself? Fantastic. I'm really pumped to have all of you on here to educate uh, me and Jay about uh, something called the donut economy. And um, to kick things off here, Jay, how do you feel like donut should be spelled? Oh, wow. Are we going to go controversial right off? It's D-O-N-U-T, of course. That's what I thought. We're not British. Is, because what we're talking about, the donut economy itself is, is spelled, how's, how's it spelled, Scott? Is that it's correct? D-O-U-G-H-N-U-T. Where do you fall on this debate? Well, I, I'm, I, I'm partial to the British. I, I, I kind of like the way that it distinguishes it from, a, you know, a bakery. Feels like it would be a fancy donut that would cost more money, like a New York City donut. It would be like you know, $2 <laughs> a donut or something like that. Not a Muncie, Indiana donut. Uh, uh, so, um, John, Scott, you guys both kind of, um, we've talked about some of these things off, off, off the air before. Um, in regards to what the donut economy is, and you encourage me and Jay to watch the video. So I was wondering if before, we're actually going to share Kate uh, Raworth, Rayworth, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, either I really did my homework. Uh, we're going to actually listen to her entire TED Talk, and then afterwards, the four of us are going to have a conversation and break it down a little bit more, and you guys have some particular expertise in this area. Um, so before we get into Kate's uh, TED Talk, um, Scott, what is the donut economy? Just and why? Why did you share this with us? Well, as it was as I begin to learn from it, and, and again, my introduction is thanks to John, and he can talk some more about that. But it became very obvious um, based on the research, the travels, the work you've done, the fact that you've been trying to promote the value of of, of sort of economies of, of the value of people that have not been a part of the mainstream uh, economy, not been sort of valued at what they actually do to contribute. And so what I felt was really unique about this approach was it really began to put some numbers, some qualifications on the things that uh, have been in part of our conversation, the environment, people, what we're doing in terms of the knowledges. So it's, it brings about, for me, it, it brings about what, what I've always used the term full spectrum capital, 
looking at a full range of of, of ec- economy things that affect our economy, and she does the best job I think in trying to pulling that together and giving it uh, a way of explaining it. So I I felt it would really resonate with a lot of the work you're doing and certainly the work that uh, John is working on in terms of his writings and presentations. Great. John, before we get to the, the TED Talk, is there anything you'd like to add, kind of set it up? Uh, yeah, I think that um, uh, a lot of my work is focused on understanding how humanity connects with the complex system we're a part of. And that model, I think, is the one that most clearly presents um, economics as a dialogue between people addressing their needs and planetary systems as regenerative systems having a capacity that if they're pushed beyond that capacity, it places humanity at, at risk. And so it's, it's a... It, it embraces the uh, complexity of what uh, Scott mentioned, a, a full-spectrum economics. It's not just about financial capital. It's about financial capital, environmental, social, political, uh, the whole spectrum of different capitals that all somehow interconnect to, um, uh, to affect uh, wellness of both people and place. So it's a more holistic kind of view of um, life on Earth to some extent. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's uh, it's it's uh, recognizing that humanity isn't setting the rules of the game, and that for humanity to do what we want to do to address our needs, we have to be able to do that. Uh, somehow within the context of this bigger system we're a part of that doesn't operate by humanity's rules. It's like the uh, podcast you did a, a, a while back uh, when you were in Patagonia where where uh, people uh, there uh, basically have to have a conversation with their, with their context, with their place, uh, and ask permission uh, which, uh, from my sense, I would see that more, you know, I would see that or I would frame that as uh, as understanding the rules by which that place worked. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm uh, um, just uh, happy that you listened to an episode. That's really exciting. You want, already, already one of my favorite guests uh, to have on here. Oh, so, I, was, uh, I was fascinated by it. Oh, there you go. That's great to hear. Um so uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into Kate's uh, Rayworth's um, uh, TED Talk. It's titled, A Healthy Economy Should Be Designed to Thrive, Not Grow. And it was first released April of 2018. Have you ever watched a baby learning to crawl? Because as any parent knows, it's gripping. First, they wriggle about on the floor, usually backwards, but then they drag themselves forwards. And then they pull themselves up to stand, and we all clap. And that simple motion of forwards and upwards, it's the most basic direction of progress we humans recognize. We tell it in our story of evolution as well. 
from our lolloping ancestors to Homo erectus, finally upright, to Homo sapiens, depicted always a man, always mid-stride. So no wonder we so readily believe that economic progress will take this very same shape, this ever-rising line of growth. It's time to think again, to reimagine the shape of progress, because today we have economies that need to grow, whether or not they make us thrive. And what we need, especially in the richest countries, are economies that make us thrive, whether or not they grow. Yes, it's a little flip in words, hiding a profound shift in mindset. But I believe this is the shift we need to make if we, humanity, are going to thrive here together this century. So, where did this obsession with growth come from? Well, GDP, gross domestic product, it's just the total cost of goods and services sold in an economy in a year. It was invented in the 1930s, but it very soon became the overriding goal of policymaking. So much so that even today, in the richest of countries, governments think that the solution to their economic problems lies in more growth. Just how that happened is best told through the 1960 classic by W. W. Rostow. I love it so much. I have a first edition copy. The stages of economic growth: a non-communist manifesto. <laughs> you can just smell the politics, huh? And Rostow tells us that all economies need to pass through five stages of growth. First, traditional society, where a nation's output is limited by its technology, its institutions, and mindset. But then the preconditions for takeoff. Where we get the beginnings of a banking industry, the mechanization of work, and the belief that growth is necessary for something beyond itself, like national dignity or a better life for the children, then take off, where compound interest is built into the economy's institutions, and growth becomes the normal condition. Fourth is the drive to maturity, where you can have any industry you want, no matter your natural resource base, and the fifth and final stage. The age of high mass consumption, where people can buy all the consumer goods they want, like bicycles and sewing machines. This was 1960, remember? <laughs> well, you can hear the implicit airplane metaphor in this story, but this plane is like no other because it can never be allowed to land. Rostow left us flying into the sunset of mass consumerism, and he knew it, as he wrote. And then, the question beyond, where history offers us only fragments: what to do when the increase in real income itself loses its charm? He asked that question, but he never answered it. And here's why: the year was 1960. He was an advisor to the presidential candidate John F. Kennedy, who was running for election on the promise of 5% growth. So Rostow's job was to keep that plane flying, not to ask if, how, or when it could ever be allowed to land. So here we are, flying into the sunset of mass consumerism, over half a century on, with economies that have come to expect, demand, and depend upon unending growth, because we're financially, politically, and socially addicted to it. 
We're financially addicted to growth because today's financial system is designed to pursue the highest rate of monetary return, putting publicly traded companies under constant pressure to deliver growing sales, growing market share, and growing profits. And because banks create money as debt bearing interest, which must be repaid with more. We're politically addicted to growth because politicians want to raise tax revenue without raising taxes, and a growing GDP seems a sure way to do that. And no politician wants to lose their place in the G20 family photo. <laughs> But if their economy stops growing while the rest keep going, well, they'll be booted out by the next emerging powerhouse. And we are socially addicted to growth because, thanks to a century of consumer propaganda, which fascinatingly was created by Edward Bernays, the nephew of Sigmund Freud, who realized that his uncle's psychotherapy could be turned into very lucrative retail therapy. If we could be convinced to believe that we transform ourselves every time we buy something more, none of these addictions are insurmountable, but they all deserve far more attention than they currently get. Because look where this journey has been taking us. Global GDP is ten times bigger than it was in 1950, and that increase has brought prosperity to billions of people. But the global economy has also become Incredibly divisive, with the vast share of returns to wealth now accruing to a fraction of the global one percent, and the economy has become incredibly degenerative, rapidly destabilizing this delicately balanced planet on which all of our lives depend. Our politicians know it, and so they offer new destinations for growth. You can have green growth, inclusive growth, smart, resilient, balanced growth. Choose any future you want. So long as you choose growth, I think it's time to choose a higher ambition, a far bigger one, because humanity's 21st-century challenge is clear: to meet the needs of all people within the means of this extraordinary, unique living planet, so that we and the rest of nature can thrive. Progress on this goal isn't going to be measured with a metric of money. We need a dashboard of indicators. And when I sat down to try and draw a picture of what that might look like, strange though this is going to sound, it came out looking like a donut. I know, I'm sorry, but let me introduce you to the one donut that might actually turn out to be good for us. So imagine humanity's resource use radiating out from the middle. That hole in the middle is a place where people are falling short on life's essentials. They don't have the food, healthcare, education, political voice, housing that every person needs for a life of dignity and opportunity. We want to get everybody out of the hole, over the social foundation, and into that green donut itself. But, and it's a big but. We cannot let our collective resource use overshoot that outer circle, the ecological ceiling, because there we put so much pressure on this extraordinary planet that we begin to kick it out of kilter. We cause climate breakdown. We acidify the oceans, a hole in the ozone layer, pushing ourselves beyond the planetary boundaries of the life-supporting systems that have, for the last 11,000 years, made Earth such a benevolent home to humanity. So this double-sided challenge to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet it invites a new shape of progress, no longer this ever-rising line of growth, but a sweet spot for humanity, thriving in dynamic balance between the foundation and the ceiling. And I was really struck 
once I'd drawn this picture, to realize that the symbol of well-being in many ancient cultures reflects this very same sense of dynamic balance. From the Maori Takarangi to the Taoist yin-yang, the Buddhist endless knot, the Celtic double spiral. So can we find this dynamic balance in the 21st century? Well, that's a key question, because as these red wedges show, right now we are far from balance, falling short and overshooting at the same time. Look in that hole, you can see that millions or billions of people worldwide still fall short on their most basic of needs. And yet we've already overshot at least four of these planetary boundaries, risking irreversible impacts of climate breakdown and ecosystem collapse. This is the state of humanity and our planetary home. We, the people of the early 21st century, this is our selfie. No economist from last century saw this picture. So why would we imagine that their theories would be up for taking on its challenges? We need ideas of our own because we are the first generation to see this, and probably the last with a real chance of turning this story around. You see, 20th century economics assured us that if growth creates inequality, don't try to redistribute, because more growth will even things up again. If growth creates pollution, don't try to regulate, because more growth will clean things up again. Except, it turns out, it doesn't, and it won't. We need to create economies that tackle this shortfall and overshoot together by design. We need economies that are regenerative and distributive by design. You see, we've inherited degenerative industries. We take Earth's materials, make them into stuff we want, use it for a while, often only once, and then throw it away. And that is pushing us over planetary boundaries. So we need to bend those arrows around, create economies that work with and within the cycles of the living world, so that resources are never used up, but are used again and again. Economies that run on sunlight, where waste from one process is food for the next. And this kind of regenerative design is popping up everywhere. Over 100 cities worldwide, from Quito to Oslo, from Harare to Hobart, already generate more than 70% of their electricity from sun, wind and waves. Cities like London, Glasgow, Amsterdam are pioneering circular city design, finding ways to turn the waste from one urban process into food for the next. And from Tigray, Ethiopia, to Queensland, Australia, Farmers and foresters are regenerating once barren landscapes so that it teems with life again. But as well as being regenerative by design, our economies must be distributive by design. And we've got unprecedented opportunities for making that happen. Because 20th century centralized technologies, institutions, con concentrated wealth, knowledge and power in few hands. This century, we can design our technologies and institutions to distribute wealth, knowledge and empowerment to many. Instead of fossil fuel energy and large-scale manufacturing, we've got renewable energy networks, digital platforms and 3D printing. 200 years of corporate control over intellectual property is being upended by the bottom-up, open-source, peer-to-peer knowledge commons. And corporations that still pursue maximum rate of return for their shareholders, well, they suddenly look rather out of date next to social enterprises that are designed to generate multiple forms of value and share it with those throughout their networks. If we can harness today's technologies, from AI to blockchain 
to the Internet of Things, to material science, if we can harness these in service of distributive design, we can ensure that healthcare, education, finance, energy, political voice reaches and empowers those people who need it most. You see, regenerative and distributive design create extraordinary opportunities for the 21st century economy. So where does this leave Rostow's airplane ride? Well, for some, it still carries the hope of endless green growth, the idea that thanks to dematerialization, exponential GDP growth can go on forever while resource use keeps falling. But look at the data. This is a flight of fancy. Yes, we need to dematerialize our economies, but this dependency on unending growth cannot be decoupled from resource use on anything like the scale required to bring us safely back within planetary boundaries. I know this way of thinking about growth is unfamiliar, because growth is good, no? We want our children to grow, our gardens to grow. Yes, look to nature, and growth is a wonderful, healthy source of life. It's a phase, but many economies like Ethiopia and Nepal today may be in that phase. Their economies are growing at 7% a year. But look again to nature, because from your children's feet to the Amazon forest, nothing in nature grows forever. Things grow, and they grow up, and they mature, and it's only by doing so that they can thrive for a very long time. We already know this. If I told you my friend went to the doctor who told her she had a growth, well, that feels very different, because we intuitively understand that when something tries to grow forever within a healthy, living, thriving system, it's a threat to the health of the whole. So why would we imagine that our economies would be the one system that could buck this trend and succeed by growing forever? We urgently need financial, political and social innovations that enable us to overcome this structural dependency on growth so that we can instead focus on thriving in balance within the social and the ecological boundaries of the donut. And if the mere idea of boundaries makes you feel, well, bounded, think again. Because the world's most ingenious people turn boundaries into the source of their creativity. From Mozart on his five-octave piano, Jimi Hendrix on his six-string guitar, Serena Williams on a tennis court. It's boundaries that unleash our potential. And the donut's boundaries unleash the potential for humanity to thrive with boundless creativity, participation, belonging and meaning. It's going to take all the ingenuity that we have got to get there. So bring it on. Thank you. For more TED Talks, go to TED.com. So, Jay, that was uh, kind of an overview of the donut economy. Are you uh, ready to cash in your, uh, your corporate world job and, and start slinging donuts? I don't know. I don't know why you always, uh, I don't know why you always bug me first with these two guys on. They're too smart for me. Um, you know, it, I, when I watch it, it really rings with me. First off, you know, the company I work for, we don't really consume so much natural resource, but it really is this sort of, why are we so addicted to growth, which is something I feel all the time, right? You and I have talked about that, like, uh, 
you know, when McDonald's gets to a certain point and they've earned so much money and sold billions of hamburgers, they have to sell more hamburgers. I mean, there's just no end to it. Right. And the stock market and, you know, if you're in the lucky 50% or whatever it is of the nation that owns stocks, you want to see those stocks grow. Um, but that seems to be what we're, we're driven off of is this growth for growth's sake. And what I like about this model is it does, it shows you a, a, a group of variables that tie together to each other and they have to, they have to uh, equal, equal out, right? There's an equilibrium to, to them. One can't outpace the other. Um, and that, that really gives you something to govern your actions by. Otherwise, it's growth for growth's sake, right? I want more out of my 401k. I want more out of my stocks. It's not a savings plan. It's a growth plan. Yeah, I was well, right there at the end of her talk. She talks about if a friend comes up to you and says, I have a growth. Like, I thought that was, <laughs> I thought it was really powerful. Uh, having a growth and, and, uh, that grows forever uh, in a living breathing system does not it's un completely unnatural um right. well to kind of help us break this down um and scott and john are kind of experts in this area uh and to kind of introduce them a little bit um you know i, I don't know if, if i'm wrong on this but i know you uh when i think of like landscape design and, and architecture my very rudimentary understanding of what the term means i often think about like shifting the landscape to better serve human purposes um but i know that both of you kind of focus uh in areas much broader than that much more complex than that and so um john going into this i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about kind of your area of uh interest and topics and kind of uh the, how what your work focuses on sure um in terms of um profession i was educated as an architect and a landscape architect, but I was educated as a landscape architect uh, with a person who really introduced landscape architecture to the notion of resource management and of systems and of shifting the uh, mindset of landscape from garden design into this much broader agenda. So when I first started doing that in the mid-70s, we were dealing with the kind of things that uh, people now uh, talk about when they talk about sustainability, etc. So first and foremost, back then, I made a shift into focusing uh, on systems, not on things. And so if I'm looking at economics, I'm not looking at the economics as the flow of financial resources only. I'm looking at economics as part of a bigger system that is social, that is economic, that is environmental, and how we choose to engage economically determines quality of life, determines the quality of the environment, determines the quality of our communities, etc. And so I see economics as one of those windows into understanding how we make whole system decisions that don't just work economically, but that work in all of these other capitals. In fact, 
I would say they do work economically, but it's not just financial economics. It's environmental economics. It's social economics. It's uh, community economics. So I have this whole system sense that I uh, that I uh, look at economics through, which is why I so much uh, appreciate uh, Kate Rayworth's uh, donut model for economics because I think it takes that full spectrum view. And, and Scott, do you uh, you come to this from a, a fairly similar background, or is it uh, vary um, a little bit? Slightly different in that my starting with architecture moved more into then community development and around urban planning. And um, so the entry into some of this, the conversation, um, and actually John and I started working together 10, 10 12 years ago um, when we went to Africa to look at uh, locating a new university in, in Cameroon. And um, basically from that trip on for a, up to about a year and a half ago when John uh, moved moved to the uh, the East Coast, why we had spent every day discussing and looking and, and sort of absorbing thoughts from each other. And certainly I, I've been greatly influenced by John's understandings and bringing a, a, a perspective from some uh, urban planning and, and urban design has been a great meld in, in which we've found a lot of opportunities to to really explore and investigate and try to see how we could begin to implement some of that. So we had formed a company that focused on water, food, and energy as three systems that we felt had to thrive. And so a lot of the work that we've been doing has been trying to promote and, and advocate for a much more holistic view uh, of how we approach uh, communities. Great. So I'm kind of hoping you guys can break this down for me a little bit more in terms of, um, you know, as we listen to uh, uh, Ray Worth's talk, um, it's a pr it's pretty high level. Uh, and she has this quote I pulled from it. So imagine humanity's resource use radiating out from the middle. She's describing her donut. Uh, that hole in the middle is a place where people are falling short on life's essentials. They don't have the food, healthcare, education, political voting, housing that every person needs for a life of dignity and opportunity. So I'm wondering if you guys kind of um, break down like the layers of the donut, like starting from the middle, what's in the middle to what's on the outside and kind of how that concept works. Okay. You want me to jump on that one, Scott? Yep. Do it, John. Okay. Um, starting from the center, I mean, the notion of the donut is that that center area between the two rings, um, Rayworth actually identifies as a safe and a just space for humanity. So it's safe in the sense that if we live within that zone or that space, we won't be uh, placing ourselves at risk of environmental collapse, of climate change that comes back to hurt us, of coronaviruses that begin to just pop up from everywhere because we've eliminated the habitat of the animals that they used to be uh, living in. Uh, and then the, uh, the just space, the just dimension of it, refers to uh, people and justice. And so the notion she sees the inner ring of the donut 
as the social foundations. So all of those things within the center, health, food, water, et cetera, are things that there's a basic need for. And unless we're addressing each of those, at least at the level of basic access to food, access to water, access to health, gender equality, et cetera, if we're not adequately addressing those, then we're not meeting the social foundation. And if we live in, an, in a planet of unlimited resources, everybody could have everything, um, but uh, according to this model, uh, you, you want to address human needs, but if you consume too much resource to get there, then the planetary systems outside of the outer ring, you begin to push those systems beyond which they cannot fully regenerate to build this wonderfully complex world that we inherited that provides us clean air to breathe and pure water to drink and fertile soils in which to produce food. So as, as uh, um, Jay said a, a few minutes ago, it is kind of like a balance. It's like an eco-balance. And can we eco-balance between humanity addressing its needs and the needs of the complex system to regenerate itself, can we live within that safe and just space, which uh, could be referred to as an eco-balanced space? And if we can live within that, then everyone can have their basic needs addressed and the planetary systems will continue and not uh, getting broke, broken down. Scott, you want to take it from there? Yeah, I, I think the the great thing that, that this brings in, and, and from, again, looking at these sort of backgrounds, economics theories and, and ideas that have traditionally guided us um, have not had a full understanding. And, and I may bring in some things. What was really intriguing in the book is talking about just how we don't value so much that is fundamental to our society. And again, Kelsey, I think this is where you've done such a great job in your writings is talking about those values, those things that uh, go into our food system that we don't appreciate, that are not being uh, fully supported. You talked about people, you talked about the environment, the places you visited. So we don't place, we don't have a system, an economic system that can show value in that and having something to quantify. I'm, I've been around long enough back in the seventies when we first started talking about creating quality of life for place. It was not something accepted by a lot of folks in the economic world because they couldn't figure out how to quantify that. How do you, how do you determine whether something is a quality of life? How do you do that? And so what she has done so masterfully is putting together this full spectrum of understandings where we can begin to quantify that. We can begin to determine when it's out of balance, as has been indicated, when it's when we're, we're absorbing too much of that. And it is an infinite number of, of, of supply that we have. So um, I think what's really uh, encouraging about this from, from many perspectives, it gives us a, a way of uh, metrics that gives us a way to quantify and, and, and begin to take a 
larger perspective on, on what we look at. Do you, do you guys think, I mean, so much of what you're talking about and certainly important and part of that, uh, that center ring is the environment and the natural resources we consume. And certainly those are part of so much of what is produced and, and what we seem to continue to just take, take, take from the planet, um, which is noticeable, right? We're seeing the results of that. I feel like the other resource in this, and I haven't read the book and I'm obviously going to have to order it tonight, um, is the human resource part of this, right? So there is a finite number of humans on the planet and there's a finite number of people that can actually perform some of these tasks. So this, this will seem a little uh, grandstandy from the, uh, uh, you know, the iPhone standpoint. And I don't know all the facts behind what's happening in China and who's working on the phones and how young they are and all that kind of stuff. But let's face it, when you start looking at and thinking about the demand for something is so high. Now this is, is also a natural part of running a company and also gets to be something I think that is unnatural. You go to where you can get the most people to produce the fastest product because keeping up with demand, if you don't keep up with demand, you're losing revenue. So you can overuse human beings in the same way. And, and, you know, of course, Kelsey's covered some of those stories too, where we just overuse the human resource and push past those boundaries because there's profit to be had. There is more revenue to get. Um, and that feels much the same to me as, as the sort of um, earth resources or environmental resources that we take. Well, to me, Kelsey, that's the beauty of this, uh, of Rayworth's model is because it doesn't start, and in, and in the very beginning of the presentation, she talks about what she experienced when she went to um, a, um, a school of economics and how quickly she became disillusioned because that economic model of extracting as much profit as one can is not a good descriptor of how the world actually works. And the world only works because of all of these things that are externalized from the way we tend and the way we've been taught to think about economics. <clears throat> and if you don't look at a, a, an economics that's entirely financial capital where you can burn through all other capitals so as to extract some more financial profit, then you begin to realize that, you know, there is something that is deeper and more uh, and more essential to humanity than extracting more profit. And that has to do with, you know, how do we sustain the system that we depend upon to thrive? And more and more, we're discovering that because of this short-term financial capital focus, way in which we've chosen to believe the world worked, even though it didn't, more and more the world is coming back, the complex system is coming back to tell us, hey, that's not the way it really works. Therefore, the climate's going to begin to change. Therefore, all these other things are going to, going to begin to happen because we've made our decisions based upon an economics that is fundamentally flawed. You can't externalize real costs and believe that or and, and think that what you're creating is going to be sustainable. 
because you can't have, as as uh, uh, as was said earlier, you can't have uh, infinitesimal, or you can't have uh, unlimited growth in a finite planet. You have to work within the resources that are 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 finite. And if we want to continue to grow, we grow by doing more with less not by consuming more. Uh, and that takes that full spectrum. Yeah, and that's that's where I think, and this is Jay, by the way, that's where I think um, having, because that's all a subjective, that's going to be a subjective measure, right? So what 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 is an appropriate use of resources and um, what's an appropriate uh, uh, consumption of resources? And coming up with some sort of agreed upon metrics or something that, you know, we can all stand behind to say, look, this is as far as we go. Um, that's, that's part of the issue, right? Every country has a different de- definition of that. And China might be the worst of those. Um, you know, it's environment be damned. Of course, we're starting to sound a lot the same way, but um, it's such a subjective measure that it's going to be interpreted and used differently um, depending on who's applying the, applying the tool. I think you know it. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Scott. I was just going to say, um, the four of us at one time all lived here in, in Munster, good old Muncie, Indiana. Um, but the, the perfect example of this, I think, is the story of the White River in Munster. So here was this amazing feature that brought people to settle here as a resource, early Native uh, folks. And it became an asset in which we used to attract industry. And it became something that could be used as part of glass making and other manufacturing. And it also became then the cesspool. It became, uh, I'm going to quickly get rid of what, what this, this waste product. And the river became this unimaginable toxic place. And it, it was, again, because this balance wasn't in place to respect that or understand the relationships um, so that it became a liability and at a great expense to begin to clean it up and try to get it back where we've been successful, thanks to John Craddock. But that's a perfect example of how something was not valued and was exploited and created consequences. Yeah, that's a great one. And to kind of piggyback on that, you know, recently we had a, have an episode that's coming um, uh, up on this, or maybe the episode will be even before this one, I'm not sure, but on, there was a, a factory that tried to come into Muncie uh, called the Wales Sustainable Products Factory that was going to make, um, it's going to be the largest uh, polluter of, of lead um, and it was really like just really close to the to the White River. And one of the concerns, in addition to air particulates that the factory released, uh, upwind of fifty thousand people uh, was the was the White River. And people kind of rose up, and there was a, a local action against that company, and they actually did not settle here. So, I mean, to some extent, you had people who then saw the value of, and maybe it just wasn't the river. In that instance, it was, well, what are my kids going to be breathing in? There was a lot of other, what are my home prices going to do? It wasn't just the river itself that people 
stood up to, to fight for. Um, I want to touch on something that John said about just, I mean, so much of this is about the short-term focus of, um, of uh, quarterly profits, uh, uh, just the, so nearsighted that we sacrifice long-term, uh, long-term profit maybe for a company or certainly long-term um, uh, conservation of our resources. But sometimes the, the model is just like, it's designed by uh, humans. Uh, like, an, an example is I was listening to a book or uh, interview about the financial crisis, or maybe it was a movie. Um, and they talked about the model that, that the experts had for the, our economy and how you could not put a negative in for uh, home values. So like our, our model was created that it could only, there could only ever be growth. It's like, almost like we couldn't even fathom there not being growth in our home values. Uh, so is that, I mean, we created a system, but also is it just so much a part of our human culture, certainly maybe uh, Western cultures. Um, when I visited indigenous groups in Colombia and other places, they don't have this relentless pursuit of growth or this need for growth uh, like we do. But is it, uh, is, is, it a, is it a cultural thing that needs fixed? Do we need to change culturally as, as people or is it, can we structure something differently that we can have more of a donut economy? You know, Kelsey, um, there's, a, um, there's a beautiful uh, TED talk by George Manbiot that deals with the power of a story. And everyone has their story and every culture has their story of how the world works. And certainly our story in the present day and time in the US is very much a, a story that's grounded in an extractive economic way of seeing the world. Success is being able to extract more benefit and therefore make more profit. Um, and the uh, George Manbiot really talks about the only a, a, a more powerful story can replace an old story. People can't just give up their story because then they, they have no grounding. So to me, the challenge is how do we um, build an appreciation of a story which isn't grounded in how do we take out of the system to grow forever and ever, but rather is based upon how do we collaborate with the system so as to regenerate thriving for ourselves and the, and the system into the future. So I think it really is a matter of the culture whether it's the local culture of Muncie, whether it's Indiana culture, whether it's U.S. culture, whether it's a global culture, it's a matter of embracing a new story. And from a systems point of view, because we are so dependent upon things that we can't control, like air, water, food, whatever, uh, we are so dependent on biological systems to sustain our lives that uh, we have to be somehow able to 
co-adapt with those systems so that we don't destroy the resource that we're ultimately dependent upon. And unfortunately, we haven't done a very good job of that. And the system is now coming back to tell us, wait, things have to shift or else uh, humanity is uh, going to not be able to assume that we're going to have everything as we've assumed in the past. When I visited with the Arwako, the indigenous group in, in Colombia, um, the spiritual leaders there were kind of like the, the priests, but the more like guides, I guess. Um, and they, when I asked them about the future for our climate and for our planet, and they're like, oh, the planet is going to be, it's going to be fine. Well, basically what we're talking about here is human extinction. So it's like, you know, the yep. planet will like uh, you know, adjust uh, and, you know, we're talking about human extinction. That was really kind of scary um, and depressing, but, but also kind of the, the resiliency of, of nature. Would, I mean, it's going to, you know, outlast, it's, it's going to outlast us and, and bounce back. Well, we've, you- we've, this, this COVID thing has proven that, right? I mean, the, just, just seeing the animals flourishing and I think, everybody's seen the Venice examples. I've, I've been there, you know, there are boats and everything just all over that water, tourists riding, you know, those, those taxi boats everywhere, supply boats, food. I mean, the water had visible oil in it. You could see it, gasoline and oil in it. And you look at it now, the planet is recovering in very small pieces because we've gotten away from it. We are not bothering it. Right. And it's been fascinating to watch in just a two-month period. Maybe we all. Yeah, and the other fascinating thing. I'm sorry. Well, I was just gonna say maybe we the all other... need to watch Wall-E again, uh, the Pixar yeah. movie, yeah. which we have to yeah. leave the Earth because we've destroyed it. Next podcast, Scott, we'll watch that. Okay. The other thing is that we're so committed into our system in that small amount of time that the Earth is beginning to show us how it can, in fact, come back to full functionality. Uh, We are also at the place where we don't feel that we can tolerate the economic uh, collapse to allow that to continue. So we are at this point where, you know, what is going to be the new eco-balance and how long will that sustain us? And... uh, you know, we haven't, we haven't been very good in the past about weathering these trigger events in such a way that we change our basic behavior. We rather figure out how we can get through this event and then have to then deal with the next one when it creates. There's a, a, a wonderful little book called The Age of the Unthinkable that really talks about how humanity is designing the age of the unthinkable where we continue to make the decisions we make for what seem to be good reasons, many of those economic, only to find out that what we've created in the process is something that we we consider unthinkable, like climate change or coronavirus or whatever. Um, so we, we really, we are participating with the complex world around us in designing a future, whether we're aware of the future we're designing or whether we're doing it uh, happenstance. 
One of the things I want to bring us back on is it's not just environmental. It's really, it's really valuing people and a whole perspective of that. And um, in the book, it talks about, it's really a great little point. It talked about Adam Smith's in, in Wealth of Nations. And when he wrote the book, he was not married. He had no children. He went back to stay with his mother so that he could write the book. She then provided him his meals, took care of everything about him. But that, that capital, that is a resource that doesn't get value. And the, one of the great things about what, what this book talks about is that full spectrum and understanding what is the value of a mother staying home, taking care. Kelsey, you, before we got on here, you talked about being a, a, sort of the house dad and the, the, the fact that, that when you're at home working, it's tough because you're balancing with the kids. And that's a tremendous responsibility and, and working through that. But does anyone value that? I mean, you do, we do in our own families, but nothing in the, in the economic models put value on raising kids. And putting, I mean, in some countries they do though, right? Some yeah, countries they there is a stipend for uh, stay-at-home parents. And yeah. paternity leave and things we don't have. You know, one of the things that I appreciate more than just about anything in, in my uh, experiences is the time that I have spent with, with Scott because I came to these kinds of issues, as you say, from the 30,000 feet level of dealing with systems and how we connect with systems. Scott has always been grounded at the very local uh, working with communities, working with people, um, and that uh, it's that was always a wonderful dynamic for me being able to to have these uh, conversations that were you know thirty thousand feet talking to you know uh, what's happening down on the ground in any particular place. John, I see Scott out a lot, and I think his only perspective on the local culture is sitting at the local coffee shop, the caffeinery. <laughs> I'm not getting paid. Hey, you can't, I can't argue with that. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for John most of the time. That's the <laughs> one of the things that, that I, both times. One of the things that that I think why this resonated so well with me is. Um, I grew up in a very small town, 1,800 people. Everybody knew each other. Um, and maybe I idealize that a little bit now. But when I look back at that, I feel like there was um, a sense of community that had greater values. Um, at that time, when I looked at the physical layout of the community, there weren't subdivisions that had higher-priced homes in there were two story. There was a place where the doctor lived next to the teachers where there was much greater intermixing in terms of, of economics and people's wealth. And it wasn't separated. It wasn't segregated into the stratification that we do now. And we valued the social aspects, of the community, we valued the spiritual aspects of all that. And so all those full capital things that when I look back at that, I feel like we're in place but I don't see the same things today. And that's what I really enjoyed about sort of discovering the, the donut 
uh, is that that now I can come back to those and 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 use those kind of measurements and ideas to really begin to promote living in a balance and in that kind of community harmony. I think that if, if this model, I'm and we're gonna I'm gonna do a lot more exploring of it with some classes and so on um, coming up this fall. I'm very excited that it's one thing to do a plan related to resiliency or sustainability and, and, and creating these ideas of, of understanding what we're doing, but to be able to now frame them with each other in this context and, and realize that there are limits and we have to create a balance. I think that's what's really exciting about this idea. Some of this kind of go to, we're just much more individualistic now than we ever were. I think about the book Bowling Alone talks about all the hallmarks of community have declined, whether it's voting or, or people who get newspapers or uh, people that participate in uh, community organizations become um, all, you know, and to some extent, uh, you, uh, to, together we stand, united we fall. And um, we, we've shown that we're, when we're individually um, just looking after ourselves, we're, we're much less resilient, especially in the times that we're facing right now. One of the things that really stands out for me uh, with this was uh, growth doesn't equal thriving. And that's definitely, I think, something that indigenous communities think of. Going back to the Arawako in Colombia, they work with uh, kind of uh, westernized farmers who want to grow more coffee and make more money because there's a bigger market that they can access. And the Arawako are like, no, why? Like, we're, we're fine. They like to sit, they value sitting and talking, they singing and, and, and dancing and, and making crafts and spending time with one another. And so I, that's what kind of worries me in all of this. Like, can we get to a donut economy living within the resources, um, environmental and social that, that exist while we're so focused on ourselves? And then on top of that, the growth that we do produce isn't, being um, dispersed among all of us. Um, that's another thing she referenced uh, about being regenerative, but also being, uh, I'm not, she doesn't say dispersed, but some other form for the, the wealth, is, wealth is not being shared. So is, is, there, is you know, there hope for us? You know, I, to me, it's this whole notion of growth or no growth is, is always a challenge. Um, because um, we tend to see that term grow as being grow in quantity, etc. Uh, to me, I think there's tremendous um, potential for perhaps you know, almost uh, for huge growth. And that potential is, if you look back, and this is really looking from 30,000 feet, whatever. If you look back, there was a time when this planet was a gray orb float flying through space and produced very little of anything. And then with biologic, uh, the web of life emergence, all of that, it got to a point where we could, where the Earth produced huge amounts compared to what it used to do. And right now we have our capacity to produce limited by the fact that the potential of the planet 
is now going down each year because of things like um, pollution, climate change, whatever. So we're the system is getting less productive every year, and we're trying to figure out how to deal with that. Well, think how productive the system would be if when we make our economic decisions, they were economic decisions that also empowered the system to produce more, to be more productive. So we would be collaborating in growing new potential. And so I think the opportunity for growth is in the growth of quality rather than quantity, in the growth of new potential rather than the growth of new consumption. Um, so I prefer not to see to state it in terms of growth and no growth, because that automatically turns X number of people off. But I think the notion that if we could focus on growing the capacity, then it would be a lot, uh, uh, we'd all be better off than focusing as we do now on extracting more uh, from a uh, finite system. I'm uh, taking a class right now online from this organization called Kiss the Ground, which is uh, kind of really leading the charge, or one of one of the folks leading the charge of educating people on regenerative agriculture, which um, yep. they, they, they believe is a great way to um, sequester carbon, take carbon from the air, put it back in the soil where some of it once was. Um, and what they talk about is the three different terms, like regenerate or sorry, first, uh, degenerate, which means over time you have a loss of resources. Then you talk about sustainability, which many of us relate to, like the environmental movement. Oh, we need to be sustainable, sustainable. But they point out, well, if you de degenerate and then you sustain a degenerated level, well, that's not good. Like we need to regenerate. And then they talk about how regenerate means like more resources over time. So I think this is kind of what you're getting about, not talking about growth, but in terms of it's a win-win for the environment. It's a win-win for people. There's just absolutely more, uh, more abundance. And so they very much say that we need to, um, we need to regenerate and not just sustain. Uh, and well, it's yeah, if, if we want to, go ahead. That's fine. I was just saying it's, it's, it's a very hopeful view. Well, I always, you know, I prefer to try to be hopeful and focus on the potential of what could be rather than on uh, the what's not happening now. It's hard to stay hopeful that way. On the other hand, if I look at how much change has happened in the last two or three months in terms of people beginning to question whether the old assumptions of how the world works is the way it's going to work into the future, I see that change can occur very, very quickly. You know, my, you, the word sustainability has come up several times. The best definition I've ever heard of the, of the word sustainability was from a guy named Howard Odom, and I heard this back in the late 70s. He was writing the first uh, papers on sustainability and all these different disciplines and his definition of sustainability was to sustaining the ability to adapt as quickly as the world around us is changing or changing our ability to change 
as fast as the world around us is changing. And that, I think, is our big problem these days because we're not co-adapting nearly as quickly as we should be. We're not changing our behavior to the degree that we are creating a regenerative, sustainable, resilient future. And that's, hopefully, we'll, we'll get there. So what, what are some, what are some um, uh, practices, countries, stories, communities, companies that you feel like are, uh, are, are getting this right and are putting us uh, the next step on this path to a more of a donut economy? Or imbalance. Well, I think there. I'm sorry. Go ahead. There's just so one that's in balance. I guess you could have a donut economy and it's completely out of whack, but like a, a one where we're living within our own circles. Well, there's a whole bunch of different initiatives and movements, like Great Transition, uh, like uh, um, the uh, one of the interesting uh, places uh, from an industrial. Uh, uh, ecology point of view is uh, 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 what's the name of the Kalimborg uh, Kalimborg in Northern Europe uh, which is a place where businesses began talking to other businesses began coordinating their byproducts to be able to build and switch their productions from the making of things into production streams, and so they transformed the region into one that has a more symbiotic or ecological approach to uh, to production. Uh, so I think those kind of places exist. There are regions within the United States. There are neighborhoods within the United States that are doing some really uh, uh, Interactive uh, kinds of building community, etc. Scott, uh, maybe to kind of uh, start to tie a bow on this a little bit. Um, do you uh, see some positive examples out there of, of this being possible? Yeah, what I think is exciting is, is and as you pointed out, this TED talk was in 2018, so it's not that long ago. And obviously, there's a lot of traction that that's the publicity and the book is getting. I think uh, building a lot of momentum. From an urban planning perspective, what I'm excited about it, and I'm seeing cities like Amsterdam and a list of 100 other cities that are starting to use this now as a new model to develop their future. And um, I think that's what it's going to be. I, I cannot see this coming down in any kind of top-down. I do not see the business schools using this as a new model that they're going to have but what I do see is that where there are these grassroots people with these similar passions and ideas, then we're going to be able to, to use this framework now uh, to begin to create balances. And it's going to have to be city by city, community by community um, at the start, and um, which is probably obviously the best way because that way that grassroots effort that uh, I mean, how do we take, you know, here in Muncie, how do we now take this idea uh, and begin to really examine what we do in the future here and understand that? And uh, um, that's what I'm hopeful about is the momentum's beginning to happen at that at a level. And I just I just feel like 
this approach is bringing together many movements, ecological, uh, social justice, um, gender equality, all those things. It gives everyone a platform to begin to find a way to, to come together to, to make the changes that are necessary. And Kelsey, I would, you know, I would add, the, go ahead, go ahead, John. Uh, I think uh, one of the other things that Scott's uh, alluding to, I think, is that there's also the shift from global, global to local. Uh, it's, it's very, very difficult to turn the ship when you're dealing with a nation. It's less hard to turn the ship with a, a major city. It's much less hard to turn the ship when you're dealing with a small town. And I think that has to do with the smaller you get, uh, the more difficult it is to externalize things. So if you're making local decisions and you're screwing up the local environment, you're not going to get very much community support for what you do. Uh, and so I think part of the thing uh, is to start looking at these things that are emerging locally. And certainly you look at the local food movements, you look at what uh, a lot of uh, small communities are beginning to do with energy cooperatives and things to be able to, to build their local resilience and their local ability to thrive by depending upon themselves locally because uh, when local make decisions, they make decisions that are not just good decisions from extracting financial capital. They're good decisions, full-spectrum decisions. They help the whole system. Well, I think the, kind of the work that you're doing in the various parts of the world connecting with different consciousnesses, I think the one thing that, that uh, we don't generally have an appreciation of, we talk about losing diversity. We don't appreciate the real loss of losing cultural diversity. The kind of people like you were dealing with in, in uh, Patagonia, the, we're losing that ability to understand how to engage the world around us as each one of those indigenous languages or indigenous groups uh, ceases to, uh, to continue. So I really uh, am excited about the work you're doing and. Uh, the stories that uh, that that you're helping build. Yeah, I think about the as a group called the Artisan Grain Collaborative. Where I know someone who runs it. It's based in, I think, the, the Midwest. It's Wisconsin. They they have uh, uh, kind of uh, heritage uh, grains being grown by farmers who are then connected with um, are connected with uh, the people who process it to the bakers to the brewers and a much more like everyone knows each other and it's kind of sh shrinking that global economy a little bit. Yeah. I, I was just going to add, I think those, those things are true. I think the other thing is this sort of um, executive and corporate management in the country deciding to do something differently. And there was this, there was a release statement from, um, and I think they're called um, the business roundtable, right? 181 CEOs that said that serving shareholder value wasn't their only purpose in running a corporation. 
making those decisions at the top level by the people that are the ones that decide how capital is used is a really important part of this as well, right? And now I, I don't know what that has caused. I mean, it's Amazon, it's Walmart, it was, it's, you know, it's the who's who of the big corporations in the country. What impact has that had? I don't know. Are they still, um, you know, pushing for shareholder value in a way that we might consider unnatural at some level? I can't confirm that, but I do think it's going to take a change in, in the, the sort of capitalist uh, corporate leadership in the country to also find value in other things. Um, you know, and I think the local economy is the best way to look at it. If anything, I've noticed as a priority in, the, in this whole lockdown quarantine is that I don't want those local businesses to die. I want to make sure we're using and taking care of them and um, sustaining that local ecological business system that we're also fond of uh, seeing each other at. Right. Um, but yeah, I think the, I think corporate culture has to change um, the drive for profits and the drive for growth. And I think that starts at the top with the people with the money. We hope these crises that, that happen to us that we learn from them and adjust like the financial crisis, I think probably help push those leaders to look more at uh, what, what their roles were in society, um, you know, increase in inequality, certainly. And then, um, and one of the bright spots, if there's any of the COVID-19 as people are questioning the whole system that we've built when the, the most of the people who are essential, uh, are some of our, our lowest paid members of society. I just recently heard that some of the folks who worked in the, in the jail, uh, did not want to go to work anymore. And so they're starting to bring in National Guard to help. And in the jails, you have uh, crops that are in jeopardy of not being picked because, um, you know, the, the, the labor that is coming in, the migrant labor that comes in are, are, are less likely to come in now. Um, and so you hope that these um, tough times that we go through continue to push us to a more fair uh, economy. So it is a well, teaching think, moment. Yep. Yeah, I feel like this has been a great conversation. Anything to add, Scott? Before we head out. Thanks. Uh, no, I appreciate the opportunity. I think thanks for uh, including us, and uh, it's always great to have these conversations. Yeah, well, just thanks for. Um, you're always dropping me an email, or when we when we used to bump into each other at coffee, like <laughs> planting a seed for an idea. And, I just really appreciate the conversations that you and John have and what you're sharing with us. And so for that, as always, you are definitely good people. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Good People Podcast. Special thanks to my friend Jay Mormon for co-hosting and to Cliff Ritchie for the great tunes. You can listen to Cliff on Spotify or find him at cliffrithcheyart.com. Let's keep the good going. Please share, rate, and subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. Visit kelseytimmerman.com slash goodpeople to find show notes, suggest guests, learn more about my books, and tell us about the good you are doing in the world. 